This is Distrionics, the podcast where we talk bailouts and blowouts. And at what point your hair gets so long in lockdown that you are mistaken for some cult leader's seventh wife. Izian, Izian, I tried to say both of them there. Hello. Hello. Are you trying to say both because I have two Zooms open? Yes, that's it. <laughs> that, that must be why. And I've tried to smush them together. There's always one. There's always one in the Zoom call that has two Zooms, two screen Zooms, yes. two, two Zoom screens on, on a Zoom meeting. Yes. Yeah, because the, the, the audio doesn't work on one and the yeah. video doesn't work on the other. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so I'm, I've, I've got two Zooms on this. All things we Whatever. didn't know we would know so much about. And now we do. So much about. Oh my God. I think I was even excited about using Zoom at the beginning of, of all of this. I thought, wow, it's just such great technology. And now yeah. I just, I never want to see it again. Yes. We were just saying, weren't we, like about the kind of uh, self image, <laughs> how mm-hmm. horrified I am by my own face um, yeah. constantly. Uh, I mean, I just, don't do anything about it. I don't like put any makeup on or anything, but. I mean, are we going to get? Are we going to get to a point where we're so used to seeing ourselves when we speak that we're going to have to hold up a mirror? I'm walking down the street and chatting to a mate, and just like holding up a mirror just to check facial expressions and check you've got the right angle there because yeah. you're so used to watching yourself speak to another human being. Yeah, it's not. It's not good. Uh, I'm not enjoying that. Um, I should say though, I have turned off my camera because my uh, my fringe was wet and slept on last night, which means that it is all kinds of crazy this morning. But then you straightened it a little, and it was it wasn't that bad, I have to say. It wasn't it wasn't so bad, yeah. No. I have to say, I've been I've been um, measuring time in this lockdown through fringe cuts. Okay. Um, anyone who has a fringe will probably know what I mean by that, but fringes tend to grow and you have, you have a certain amount of time before it's absolutely inevitable that you must cut it. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess like all my life since having a fringe for the last seven years has been essentially chopped up into uh, chunks of time before I have to do a fringe cut. And I think I'm on my third I'll do okay. it today and this will be my third since lockdown, which means that it's been a, it's been ages. Yeah. That's okay. a long time. Don't three, know if you've three noticed, fringes ago. Ages. Three fringes ago, we were in a different world. <laughs> I cannot wait to go and get my hair cut. Um, but at the same time, I won't enjoy, of course, the whole mask thing and sitting there and being like, oh, because I didn't really enjoy talking at the hairdresser anyway. I always felt very obliged to, but now it'll be even weirder. Um, well, I, th- I think it's maybe better if you you're think... not someone who enjoys talking at a hairdresser. There's no reason for you to spread That's your true. droplets. Anywhere. You're just muzzled. That's <laughs> <laughs> fine. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing mm-hmm. in a situation where small talk is, um, you know, something quite strained. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what are we talking about today, Pip? Oh God. Well, you know what? I d- what I did want to say is that I listened to our um, episode in January. Oh yeah. Priorities. What? We didn't, we didn't know about coronavirus. We s- sounded like babies. <laughs> Just really worried about Brexit. What the fuck? You, oh you think Brexit's a problem? Jesus <laughs> Christ. You have no idea. You haven't got a clue. <laughs> oh my God. Like, I honestly, just, I don't even, I don't even care about Brexit a, anymore. A time of innocence. 
um oh. yeah it just it was really strange to listen to and, and listen to the energy being channeled again you want to make god laugh make plans <laughs> and we said in that episode um you know like oh 2020 bring it on and, it, and 2020 was like yeah all right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think we said at one stage this is the year that we get stuff done. Yeah, or um, not? But maybe, it's, maybe it's literally the opposite. Literally, quite the opposite. Although maybe we do get, maybe something does get done. So here we go, Pip. Here we here go. We go. This is bringing us onto what we're going to be talking about today. Strap yourself which, in. Uh, strap yourself in for a discussion about. Uh, post-COVID recovery. Oh yeah, we've got a plan. Ooh. Don't worry guys, we've got The we've thing got is, it. we definitely don't have the plan. No. Um, but I think what's uh, cool to do is just to talk about um, what the sort of economic recovery might look like and how it compares to, or how it could compare to a 2008 situation. And just like give people a sort of idea of what to look out for and what to hold to their government's to account for um because i think we were completely sort of economically illiterate in 2008 or a lot of people were too economically illiterate in 2008 to hold the government to account effectively on how much of their taxpayer money was being basically just just funneled into um the corporate elite and not in any way helping out uh, the economy more largely and uh, it's a possibility that we can use this situation to reverse that trend and maybe even create a world that is resilient for the climate crisis that's going to come very very soon and is already really here in many respects so this is the thing isn't it this is the thing i'm worried about like 2008 um Everyone's like, yeah, 2008, yeah. Uh, like, what the fuck? Like, what do we do? What happened there that we don't ha- let it happen again, please? So, well, I think what's, yeah, I mean, I'm no expert on any of this stuff, but I think a lot of the, the, the stuff that I've sort of dug out for this episode is very much in the public domain. And it's quite easy to get our hands on um, analysis of what happened in 2008 and the years subsequently after that especially what we're going to be focusing on is is a UK perspective not necessarily going into the complexities of what happened on a global scale and doing any kind of international comparisons because honestly that would just take too long but I think that the the UK perspective provides a really really good one in trying to say okay this is just this is not how we do a recovery and these are not the industries that we save with our taxpayer money um, because they just they don't they don't return no. and they don't give us the they don't give us the returns that we need in order to create a resilient and um, a buoyant economy in the in the post COVID era and and what happened in the financial crisis of two thousand and eight and the years afterwards shows us that completely and very 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 clearly mm-hmm. so just a couple of like really stark figures that I found and that a lot of people already kind of know but maybe haven't yet really internalized that the cruelty and the crime that was how much money we wasted on that banking sector um so 2008 crisis was a banking crisis um it was a crisis brought on by international banks essentially being far too flippant with um with regulations and rules and um 
just creating a system that was incredibly vulnerable and banks that were too big to fail that essentially if they had come down the entire economy would have come down and therefore as taxpayers we were obliged to bail them out okay so we paid the banks in 2008 2009 1.2 trillion pounds yeah so just to give you a sense of what that what that means in in terms of comparison to how much the actual public as a result of the banking crisis got um in comparison to the banks um the public in terms of fiscal stimulus packages, so tax cuts and additional spending that was deployed by the Labour government in the year after the 2008 financial crisis, totaled 42 billion and nothing, like a drop in the ocean. Mm. Um, the coronavirus packages that were released by Rishi Sunak in the past couple of months um, are well over 400 billion, just to give you an impression mm. or just to give you an idea. So like... They're, they've already spent 10 times what they did on fiscal stimulus packages to the public, which is a total change. It's a total sea mm. change, I guess, because they don't have rich friends to throw money at. It's mm. not obvious which corporate elites to throw money at. So the Tories are actually doing what essentially a Labour government would do, which is to shore up people's incomes rather than companies, um, bonus packages and CEO pay. So with that £1.2 trillion, we shored up banks like RBS, which got £76 billion of taxpayer money. Um, it was run by the disgraced um, Fred Goodwin. And um, was it, can I just, was it a sex crime disgrace or a uh, fraud he was crime? really, really crap at his job. Okay, okay. And, just didn't, you never know, do you? You never, yeah. is, it, is it like, is it a paedophile thing? Is it a Me Too oh, thing? Wait, just general fraud. That's enough. Was he disgraced because of that? Oh, I don't know. I just threw that out there. But it's, it's I mean, listen, this is the world we live in, in that you don't, it, it's quite likely. <laughs> I don't know. I think he was disgraced because he was crap at his job. No, no, that's, um, I mean, that's good enough. That's good enough. Carry on. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, these banks basically got this massive bailout and uh, no doubt if a Labour government had stayed in power, there would have been certain stipulations to that money, what, how they could have spent it, um, what they were supposed to do with it, um, business lending obligations and so forth. But within about 18 months, we got a new government, the Tory government, who completely took charge of the narrative of why we were in so much debt. Um, so we were in a huge amount of debt because we just bailed out the banks. Um, it, we just but spent... it, was, it was also mainly because of single mothers. Right. So here's where, here's where, the Tory, here's where the Tory narrative like comes into play because, um, because I yeah, think they, they have a pretty big effect. It's mainly them, right? They do have a disproportionate effect on <laughs> the, the steering of the ship of Great Britain, don't they? Absolutely. Disproportionate so single, amount of power. So single mothers with far too many children having children in order to gain benefits from the state. Mm. Um, Economic migrants coming to the UK mm. to work, um, a ballooning NHS and social care system. Oh, you want to care for people? Much money on the administrative sector. So I think that was something that was really interesting about that Tory uh, narrative was that they they didn't attack doctors, they attacked administrators, mm. and that has been a Tory um, uh, that has been a focus of Tory hate 
Tintori Ayer for the past decade is, is so-called NHS administrators. They're quite, a, they're, they're a tiny group of people, so you can't really tell who is an, a, a, an NHS administrator, mm -hmm. but they really do make up a real, a sort of, um, in the mind of a Tory voter and in the mind of a Tory um, policymaker, they are really like subject to ex extreme amounts of sort of um, ire by, by Tory um ideology and also the the eu of course and its yeah. red tape so those were the those were the real targets of hatred um that the that the tory party were able to sort of summon to explain this massive debt crisis that we had as a result of bailing out banks um and it was obvious it was obvious it was very clear right that it was an international banking crisis and it was caused by banks being um really bad at their jobs essentially and really crap at um steering the economy in the right way and being the sort of um uh being what we needed them to be and instead they were wasting people's money and um you know paying far too much to ceos and paying far too much in bankers bonuses and so forth so it was a really obvious thing but at the same time it was incredibly confusing and i think mm. the tories managed to completely sees the narrative in a way that even now perhaps hasn't necessarily gone away no. um why um i think that that's the main reason why they were able to win not one not two not three but four subsequent oh, elections Pip, four subsequent elections and a referendum um to take us out of the eu and i think it was I think there are there are several reasons why they were able to summon the narrative so effectively and use that narrative to essentially deprive um, the public sector of so much money in the form of austerity. You know, we we paid what in two thousand and eight to two thousand nine forty two billion in fiscal stimulus packages um, to get people out of the crisis, um, which was absolutely nothing mm. in compared to 1.2 trillion pounds that was paid to the banks of which we have got back there was a study done in 2017 of that 1.2 trillion pounds we have got back 58 billion oh so a drop in the ocean and that's it isn't uh, it you, you might have seen like Mm -hmm. you like the sorry the, these like you know when you know these like um things going on around online at the moment like trying to get across what a trillion is like in compare in comparison to a billion yeah like it's not you know because you get to the point where you're like okay 50 billion like okay like and how many steps up is it to a trillion it's just yeah. it's just beyond yeah. yeah like whoa okay that many <laughs> like i didn't a, even it's know a thousand, it's a thousand billion so yeah we got 58 billion back of um in return for 1.2 trillion so it was it was a huge mm. i mean i mean george i think you know gordon brown and many economists would say that he did the right thing bailing out the banks and we needed that in order to shore up the economy but any government should have taken that taxpayer money and expected a huge amount more back than they got for it. Yeah. Um, because in the years subsequently, the reason why it's so low is because business, business lending was ex extremely low and remains extremely low in the UK. Um, so that money didn't go back into the business sector, the private sector, the banking sector, 
because it was never really it never really had much oversight in the mm-hmm. first place and then has less oversight than it did even before 2008 because we've had 10 years of of Tory policies essentially letting their friends run riot with mm-hmm. our economy um business lending has remained at very low rates so that money wasn't regenerated into loans for new businesses to start up to employ people to give people incomes blah 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 blah, blah and create that pump prime um, effect that you have in sort of Keynesian economics also um, taxpayers didn't maintain their equity in the banks uh, we sold off our shares for bargain basement prices again to profit uh, an already rich elite uh, class of corporates who had essentially fleeced us um, for a huge amount of money in the first place so we socialized um, losses we socialized losses in a big way and we privatized profits um, so there was no, there was a huge amount of sort of outrage in the press of uh, bankers getting these extreme bonuses that they uh, got for years and years after the crisis. Um, but there was no government regulation. So we didn't say as part owners of RBS, for instance, you can't give your um, bankers a huge amount of bonuses. That's just not fair mm. because Tory philosophy is the market knows best. Essentially, their rich friends know better than a stupid, idiotic taxpayer who yeah. bailed them out to the tune of £1.2 trillion. So they managed to really just, just manage to dominate that narrative in a way that Labour wasn't able to fight back against for 10 years. And I think that in the future, historians will be asking the question of like how the British public didn't understand the reality of the banking crisis in 2008 and how they were able to be fooled into thinking it was their own fault in a way. Yeah, um, yeah. It, was, it was their dependence on public spending. It was yeah. um, their dependence on an NHS, their dependence on public transport, their dependence on social care sector, their dependence on child services, their dependence on refuges for women escaping abusive partners and abusive relationships. It was their dependence on a ballooning public sector that caused an international banking crisis in 2008 and it's kind of one of those things where i know we're nazi historians Mm. and one of those big questions that you have to ask constantly is how did the germans think it was a good idea to vote for a guy like adolf hitler in in 1933 and that's like a big question in history and people spend reams and reams and books and books and books answering that question and i think in the future it will be how did the tories win four elections and a referendum based on uh, essentially uh, lies and deceit. Um, And I think there's a few answers to that question. And I think that this is an important discussion to have when discussing what's going to happen in the post-COVID recovery. Um, So so the first, so yeah, the first reason I think that they were able to dominate that narrative is um, the 2008 crisis was complicated. Mm. All right. There were terms being used like derivatives, subprime mortgages, credit swaps. Um, it was a very confusing and complicated narrative to really get the head around. And to be frank, the left did not summon uh, the ability to, or, or didn't gain the ability to actually really take that narrative and create one that was um strongly in favor of making sure that the the British taxpayer got what they paid for. Because I think that we have to understand that British Labour 
back in 2008, 2009 was essentially a neoliberal project mm -hmm. that wasn't really in favor of advocating on behalf of the state no. and advocating on behalf of big government. Um, and so anything that felt in any way like a 1970s version of Labour was going to be railed against. So that's the first thing. We had an unwilling Labour Party, unwilling to really um, advocate on behalf of the state and the British taxpayer. We had a confusing, complicated narrative that included things like subprime mortgages, uh, derivatives, credit swaps, credit swaps. It was confusing for people to really understand. And it also went on for ages, right? Mm. It was like 18 months of uh, this sort of, the, this bank is going out of business and this bank needs bailing out. And it was this period of time where you could kind of use it to create a narrative against state spending and against yeah. public sector spending. Do you um, think as well, you know, we, we are also they've done a very good job of also how we are inclined we're a conservative small c conservative country anyway but also just the fact that you can we don't you know there's no education about politics in the uk really and, th mm. and that's 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 on purpose you know you want you want like a sleepy kind of electorate they've never had the same kind of like attitude towards civic education that germany does for example Absolutely. And civic responsibility as well. Yeah. Like it's your civic responsibility to vote. We have very low voting um, percentages. They're getting better now because the situation is getting more and more desperate. But um, we do have low voter participation. And I think that also speaks to just generally a low attitude towards civic participation in, in general, mm. um, which is, you know, complaining about a state that is doing very well, which is what I kind of love about this country because like, Germans will never be happy, um, yeah. always seeking improvement. And the, 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 the kind of the principle of, um, you know, once you erode something a little bit, you erode it completely. I remember coming here and there was a debate about student tuition fees and wanting to uh, revoke essentially um, what was 300 euros a semester uh, tuition fee that the universities were asking for and there were huge protests about it and I was like are you kidding me do you know what we pay back in the United Kingdom and they said it's not about that you know once you erode it a little bit once mm. you introduce the principle of um, a university that needs funds for students they'll never stop asking for more mm. and that I found revolutionary when you know I came here it was just this kind of thing of like yes absolutely that's the principle isn't it once you introduce that principle of um, privatizing uh, a public service, even just a little bit, that will, they will, it will never be enough. It yeah. will never ever be enough. And by, you know, five, 10 years time, you've got uh, 9,000 euros worth of tuition fees a year, which is what we have in the UK. Well, then what the fuck do we do then to make sure this doesn't happen now? This is, a, as you say, it's an opportunity. It's a horrible opportunity, but it has to be taken. And too many people, we've lost too many people for this to go unnoticed. And I'm, I don't know about you, I'm just really fucking angry. I'm so angry all the time. I'm so angry that we've needlessly lost so many lives. And how do we, how do we hold people to account? And how do we make an actual improvement to society in our lives? 
I mean, I don't think that either of us have the answers to those kind of questions, but I think it's what? worth. <laughs> I think it's so worth... confident. I thought you knew. <laughs> I think it's definitely worth pointing out the differences between this crisis and the one in 2008 mm. and building on those differences in order to create a much more effective response and a response that is coming from a place of strength rather mm. than a, that rather than a place of defensiveness and um and uh, confusion, which is, I think, what happened in the years after 2008. Yeah. Um, I do think that this is a very, very different situation. And I think that those things do not lend themselves to the same kind of, um, the, the same kind of like lies and betrayal, essentially, that followed the 2008 crisis as, in terms of Tory uh, messaging. So firstly, COVID is a disease. Mm. right COVID-19 is it's it's a disease it's an infectious disease it's a virus it's simple that is a very simple narrative it's not difficult to understand that um it's not your fault if you get that virus Mm. um it's not your fault that the Tory government imposed a lockdown that destroyed your business and killed off your profits for the next couple of months it's not difficult to understand that um you can't blame people for that. You can't blame single mothers, migrants, ballooning NHS spending, EU red tape. And I think what, what is, what's important to maybe look out for in the next couple of months is how the right are trying desperately to change the narrative on that and trying to, again, impose this neoliberal idea of individuals being at the center of any kind of response and individuals being at the center of any kind of degradation in um, the situation. So for instance, the Tories are starting to do messaging on staying alert rather than staying at home. Um, this is <laughs> this is a really clear uh, change in strategy, right? Yeah. Stay alert. It's on you. Mm. You avoid that virus by I don't know, having your Looking eyes out a little bit wider and just like seeing that the virus is on someone's hands or seeing that the virus is on a tree. Um, you know, it's the implication that essentially the number of infections rising um, can be blamed on people not staying alert enough, yeah. apparently. Um, you should never so sleep. Don't sleep. People should be it aware. Gets you. <laughs> It'll find you. It'll if come in through your ears. Enough. If you're not careful enough, you know, that's the real, that's the real important aspect to this. It's a change in messaging. And they were trying to do that at the beginning with the whole washing hands thing. It's all on you. Wash your hands and it'll mm. be fine. Um, and if you don't wash your hands enough, then you'll get COVID-19. Um, but it didn't If you work, are the prime minister right? and you go around like shaking everybody's hands with COVID-19 <laughs> and, I, and I, I, I shook everyone's hand, I licked everybody's face. <laughs> I, I spat yeah, into it, everybody's mouth. I think that's it. I think that they they felt that, and not to be too cynical, but Tories are very cynical people and it's important Mm. to get on their wavelength. I think that they thought that a sick prime minister would be less of a target. But what's happened is essentially no one wants to take advice from Boris Johnson because he was the idiot who got it by shaking (laughs) hands of of COVID patients. Um, So it's this thing of like, you know, he landed in intensive care because of his own actions, because he essentially didn't take his own advice, didn't wash his hands, was shaking hands with people with COVID. And, um, and, and and that sort of has destroyed this argument that people are, are very much like at the center of this of this response that individuals are at the center of this response also what the tories want to stop is any kind of international comparisons because it makes us look so so bad 
Um, the Tories have had an absolutely appalling response to this crisis and they've led to the deaths of tens of thousands of people as a result of imposing lockdown far too late, 10 days later than um, here, for instance, in Germany. That meant 10 days more spreading, 10 days more infection rates, 10 days more of, of um, the infections getting to every single part of the country, not protecting care homes, not protecting NHS staff, not having enough PPE. I mean, the list of cruelties, the list of, yeah. um, of, of what they have done wrong is, is as long as anyone's arm. And it's also really clear, it's obvious, it's not, it can't be hidden behind you know uh, credit swaps and derivatives yeah. and uh, complicated narratives it's very clear people die because of lack of access yeah. to ppe people yeah. die because of infection rates going up because we impose lockdown too late um you know people die because of these it's, it's very clear essentially how the government should have responded and how they failed to and i don't think that they'll have as easy a task of changing that narrative and turning it into oh it was actually spread by yeah. Uh, economic migrant workers yeah. coming over and picking our fruits. And oh, it was actually spread by single mothers having too many babies and a ballooning NHS and the EU and it's red tape. Um, so, yeah. You can't spin away dead bodies, piles and piles of dead bodies. Like, mm -hmm. you can't spin it away. And I don't, I just, I'm so worried and I'm so, because again, I'm so angry because it doesn't feel like people are angry enough because this is criminal negligence and they should be put on trial. If you want the responsibility of running the country and what I, you know, I can't fathom as well is that you see a lot of internalized, please step on my neck, powerful man. You know, I see a lot of people, you know, I mean, usual fucking suspects on Facebook, whatever, like the government can't be responsible for everything. Like what the fuck do you care? The government doesn't mm. care for you. Boris Johnson doesn't care for you. Like why, why are you ordinary person just internalizing this narrative? I'm so worried that they will just, that he will not end up in prison. Mm. I think prison might be a long shot, but I, I think know. that I think that he will. I think that he will inevitably be held to account, and I think we can see that by the fact that he looks like a very scared little little boy. And there are certain things that are happening at the moment that really do make me think that the Tories are scared. Jacob mm. Rees-Mogg coming out and saying uh, we need we need MPs in the chamber as soon as possible, even though there's no evidence to show that uh parliament isn't working without mps in the chamber it's working mm. it's passed already a very very large um immigration bill just just on wednesday so yeah. it's working it's being able to do its tasks it's being able to function essentially online um and i think the reason that jacob Rees-Mogg wants that is because his uh, Tory party leader boris johnson will be more easy to it will be more easy for him to hide behind you know, this in the yeah, parliament, yeah, this Tory yeah. jeering um, yeah. that happens in the parliament that will deafen someone like uh, Keir Starmer, who but is um, forensic in his... Forensic. In his... Have a drink. He's forensic. It's that word. It's, have it's a drink. He's word. forensic. Um, <laughs> but also, can we just... just I, we don't really have a huge amount of time to go into that bill, but the immigration bill, extremely fucking disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sorry, there's members of Labour voting for that fucking bill. Mm. I'm quite... I just, I just don't, I just don't know. I just don't know where we are. I can't stop thinking about... It's, um, it's the hang up of, of that old narrative of make the migrants pay for our, yeah. um, pay for every single uh, economic downturn that we yeah. have. 
and the xenophobia and the racism and again it's so out you know the representation of BAME individuals in the NHS and, and the care sector who are dying they 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 you, you know disproportionately work in those sectors and they are dying at higher rates and I can't stop thinking about like you know the nurse her name was um Mary um Agiapong who was 28 and she yeah. was pregnant and they She's saved pregnant. her baby and I can't stop thinking about it. And it's making me tear up right now. I can't stop thinking about it. And he said, oh, the thought of my baby kept me alive. Which fucking baby? You asshole. You had to be taken to court to acknowledge one of your children. You didn't give a fuck about that baby. Like that, that little girl doesn't know her mother. And if you'd introduced a lockdown earlier, maybe she would be alive. Maybe 40,000 people would be alive. I just yeah. can't understand how people aren't ripping up the streets because we're locked down. Yes, I know. I, I mean, I have to have hope that they will be held accountable for this. I mean, the Tories have gotten away with so much in the last decade um, with austerity killing thousands of people, arguably every single year. They have, they have so much blood on their hands already. And they've never been held to account for it. And they've won election after election after election, essentially with, with snake oil for the past decade. And it is getting to the point of despair, but I don't think we can despair. I think we have to just carry on, you know, attempting to hold them to account and hoping that eventually, you know, the wider British public will see them for who they are, um, which is an incredibly callous bunch of people who don't deserve to run a local shop rather no. than a country. Um, so, so yeah, but there are reasons I think that we, we can be really, really positive about this time. Please give them. So, okay. So the first thing blew I my top. is uh, the first thing I was, and it's important. It's really important. You know, outrage is one of the most important things to have when, when trying to change a system. Um, but also optimism as well mm. as, uh, a, a book that I would absolutely love to plug if anyone's sort of wanting to read something in lockdown, read The Future We Choose by Christina Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak. It is mm. brilliant and it will, honestly, it will brighten up your perspectives on, on what's to come because I think it's, uh, it's an amazing book. It's about the climate crisis, about what um, people are doing to combat it. And she was actually the head of the, um, the climate panel for the Paris agreement at the UN she was the one who organized essentially mm. the Paris agreement at the at the UN in 2015 she's amazing and you have to read that book yeah. so um and good because uh, well zoom listen love we're gonna have to solve this problem in nine minutes and 18 seconds because zoom's popped up to say we're nearly out of time okay so I'm just gonna end <laughs> on two positives which I think are really gonna sort of set you up for thinking that actually everything's gonna be fine good. the first thing is that um the ideas are finally here Right. In 2008, mm. the left was in a state of shambles. Um, essentially, neoliberal centrism had led to this situation where you couldn't really tell the left from the right in many ways, all across, not just in Britain, but all across the UK and also uh, all across the EU and also in the, in the United States as well. Um, neoliberalism, trust in the market was something that the left was very much um, in, in sync with as well as, as the right. And I, I don't think that's the case anymore. People really understand that when we're giving so much taxpayer money 
to corporate interests, we need something back for it. And 10 EU countries have now put forward um, the idea of a green recovery and that includes Germany and France, so two of the largest EU economies, um, have basically said that in order to uh, combat this, in order to sort of recover from this, we're going to need to do it fossil free, fossil fuel free, which is incredible. Um, so the ideas are finally here. We have this very galvanizing, brilliant concept now called the Green New Deal. And people are starting to really sort of galvanize around that in a way that they just weren't. Uh, able to do back 10 years ago because the the, the ideas and the, the the policy formulations just simply weren't there and the idea of sort of hacking at uh, public sector and hacking at the state was something that was being done by the by the left as well as the right um so in a statement in an opinion piece done for the climate home news um in the united in in the um in the european union written by uh, 10 environmental ministers from EU countries, uh, they said we should withstand temptations of short-term solutions in response to the present crisis that risk locking the EU into a fossil fuel economy for decades to come. This is massive and it comes a year after van der Leyen, who is the head of the EU Commission, made a Green New Deal uh, part of the EU Commission's agenda. Um, it's been widely criticised for not being ambitious enough, and even if it was, um, even if it was done, it wouldn't even keep to Paris climate change um, agreement ideas. But it's a start, and mm. what I'm really hoping is that this is the start of a massive snowball. Germany is one of the largest, most influential economies in the world, and Angela Merkel has come out publicly since lockdown and said the only way that we're going to recover is if we do it in a green way. Yeah. And this, this is huge. And mm. if, you know, next year there's a big election upset and actually Germany turns away from a Green New Deal and turns towards some kind of right-wing nightmare, then yes, that may change. But I just don't see that happening. Mm. I think that we're on a path mm. to a green recovery. And that is in the EU. And Britain has been shown to be incredibly vulnerable to comparison with other countries and uh, and i think that that's really going to have a huge effect on on where we go going forward because actually the, the largest climate movement in the eu do you know where it where it's based where the uk the I'm uk saying. has has the largest climate movement in the entirety of the eu this is also what's so yeah this is what's amazing about the uk is it's able to vote for something like brexit but it also has the largest civil disobedience groups it has the largest climate movement Labour it puts membership? on the largest it has the largest left-wing party in the entirety of the eu and it also puts on the largest protests in the eu uh, bear in mind what, we had what, two million country, people on the streets last october yeah country of absolute extremes <laughs> yeah <It's, laughs> this idea that we are extreme. these like these straightforward pragmatic people is just is just out the window we are a country no. of absolute extremes yeah, we're a divided country, but I think that there is an army there. There is an mm. army in the UK that is willing to do the right thing and willing to really put forward a very progressive agenda. It's just really unfortunate that we're not in power. Yeah. But I think that I think that we're getting there. And uh, and you know what? I think that the next election is not going to be in five years' time. That's just my just hot take. Um, okay, so the second reason I have to be incredibly cheerful is that um, let's look at emissions. Let's look at a myth. 
emissions. Um, so carbon emissions since lockdown have mm -hmm. gone down they're by early April. So we're in early May now or mid-May now, but this is a, a study that was done um, with data looking at um, lockdown or, or emissions of lockdown going up until early April. And they went down by 17%, 31% uh, in the UK. Uh, many countries reported 26% lowering of carbon emissions and 60% flying emissions. So emissions from the flying sector have been taken away. Um, so this is also like a very big positive in one direction. However, it on a more complicated way mm. shows the fallacy in the idea that individuals are going to solve the climate crisis. Yeah. Um, because what that means is it's 17% cumulatively across the globe, emissions have gone down by early April. That means that 83% stayed in place right. with the world shut down with mm. everyone staying at home with people not participating in normal life not going not driving their cars not going on planes still 83 percent of emissions were around so mm. it just shows essentially on a more sort of complicated and um, structural level policy level we can't do it by ourselves we need yeah. our governments yeah. we need our companies we need our corporate elite we need everyone essentially to get involved with emissions targets, not just people um, eating vegan and moving away from, uh, you know, diesel cars. You know, this is this is not the way we do it. We have to do it on a structural level. So but, like, when my mother like beats herself about not recycling something and, and can't sleep, God love her, because she's not recycled one yogurt pot. It's not her fault. It's we need those yogurt companies to stop creating stuff out of things yes. that will never ever be destroyed yeah. however it's both right mm -hmm. like we need both we need the individuals to do what they can and we also basically need governments and corporations to do what they can so it's it, it's huge huge structural change but what this emissions um lowering does really do is firstly it lowers um targets for um for the next year because Basically, um, the IEA set a, uh, a limit for emissions um, that would be set on 2020 um, emissions levels. So essentially, you can't rise above 2020. So what we've done this year is essentially bring that target so much lower um, than it would have been otherwise. So the mm -hmm. IEA is the International Energy Association. Um, it's incredibly... Uh, uh, influential group that looks at world energy and tries to sort of steer governments and companies in certain directions and they have had a director for the past couple of years who is hugely focused on climate change and the climate crisis and is advocating a uh, COVID recovery that is completely centered and focused around green energy going into the future so that's Amazing. it's just it's huge and this is huge. I mean, what it implies is that the, some of the largest institutions in the world, uh, the, um, the IEA, the uh, head of the German government, um, the head of the European Commission, the European Commission, you know, these massive institutions that have a huge amount of power, um, they are advocating on behalf of a green COVID recovery and creating an economy that is resilient to the effects of the climate crisis to come and will prevent the worst effects of the climate crisis from happening in the first place. Um, so I think that this is incredibly positive. And if there is enough 
public pressure if there are enough voters who vote on behalf of parties that are advocating for green policies going into the future um, and if there is enough also civil disobedience to put pressure on politicians to make those targets even more ambitious then I think that it's possible that we are turning the tide and that over the next um, few years we will see the creation of economies that are regenerative, resilient and redistributive in a way that will help us to to combat the worst excesses and the worst extremes of, of the climate crisis to come. So regenerative, regenerative, resilient and redistributive. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure someone else has come up with those. No, that's fine. Those are the kind of the terms that have been just running around my head for the past couple of months, um, I think that I think resilience is is, is something that people are going to vote for in the future. Yeah. Oh, I think yeah. that I think that you know part, political parties who have resilience as one of the things that they are advocating on behalf of, uh, people are really going to start moving towards this term. Not endless growth, not endless profits for a very small percentage of their population. No brinksmanship doesn't redistribute that in any way to to the to the to the rest of the population people are going to say we want to be a resilient economy we want to be an economy that can sustain catastrophe and we're not going to do that with a neoliberal individualistic model that essentially gives all of our profits to a small group of people who do not in any way redistribute it amongst the rest of the population we need an economy that's going to generate profits for everyone make everyone in a situation where they're healthy happy creative of regenerative aspects of their lives, like for instance, gardening, growing their own food, mm -hmm. um, you know, creating some kind of, of community that is going to be able to withstand um, the, the crises to come. I think people will start voting for those kind of things. Yeah. And I, I think, to be honest, I think this is the death knell for neoliberalism. That's my positivity of this crisis, as I just don't think neoliberalism survives covid i think that the virus will eat it alive yeah well it's eating enough great people it can eat that as well um it can't like it has to something's something's got to give it's been 40 years of this shit and what do we have to show for it some people have a you know you know trillions of dollars and some people have nothing and that's just arbitrary thank you for that I feel like I had a really good education on, and I feel better. I feel good. positive. I feel worked up. I'm always worked up, as you know. And, uh, but it's just about channel channeling it, isn't it? Because otherwise, I just, just could go out and smash up cars again. I'm reading uh, a lot about permaculture. Permaculture? Makes, yeah, that makes me very happy. Um, um, that's, that's my... That's my um, Covid hot tip is read about permaculture. It's what, really, what what really is it nice at its at its core? Um, it's a term that talks about something called permanent agriculture, but they're mm. moving towards it, describing permanent culture, and it's a um, it's a it's a method of uh, growing things, babe. It's right. just uh, gardening essentially with a fancy name. Um, but so, it's it's yeah, it's a beautiful practice. It is lovely. So even even though I hate my neighbors because they play music really loudly through the night they have set up a veg patch and this morning because last night they kept me up very late 
and this this morning I, I did think about going down to their veg patch and salting the earth in the middle of the night <laughs> that's not something no. I should do no that is no no it's not it's not because they're, they're creating part of the regenerative economy, but sure. they should not be. They should not be playing music into the night. That is very sure. antisocial yeah. and uh, does not create resilient relationships. No, um, with I won't neighbors. salt the earth then. Then, <laughs> well, this has been oh. fabulous. Um, I feel good. Thank you for good. this. I felt like I've gotten a really good education on some things there. Um, sorry, sorry about the quality again, everyone. But not sorry. It's the way it is right now, isn't it? um and uh yeah please zoom bombed zoom bombed um please uh listen to us and share and please like like and subscribe at sistrionics on twitter's facebook's and instagrams you can find us on spotify soundcloud uh itunes and stitcher um and yeah should we speak soon my love yes this has been this has been Sistrionics. That kind of worked. It's fine. We're kind of we're not we're not looking at each other, so it's quite difficult no, to it's, do. No, it's fine. Bye. Bye.